Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stand, Fight, Win live stream. Today we're talking about how do you get your inheritance? People who are entitled to receive funds out of a trust or an estate and for some reason they just can't seem to get what they're entitled to. They have a bad trustee, bad executor, things along those lines. My name is Keith Davidson. Hi, I'm Stuart Albertson. And we are real lawyers with real answers and we're going to actually answer a number of questions today from real people. We get these questions all the time and we've gotten a lot of questions for today's broadcast and we'll be covering those along with any that happen to come in while we're doing our live stream. So if you have any questions and you're on Facebook or YouTube, feel free to post your questions and hopefully we can uh, get to them. We usually can. And if we can't, we always make a point of answering your questions after the broadcast is over if we don't have time to answer it during the broadcast. So. How are you doing today, Stuart? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing good. I'm a little tired. We went up to LA yesterday for a deposition, and so it's nice to be back in the office today. Kind of be able to relax and recharge your batteries before yeah. you go out to yet another deposition tomorrow. Tomorrow, but uh, today we get to talk about one of my favorite cases, Leader versus Cords, and I know you're going to be talking about that. So without further ado, let's get into it. So let's go to our first segment, Breaking News. Of course, the irony is this uh, this case today is not so breaking because it comes to us from 2010, but it's an important case and it is breaking news for anybody who hasn't been through this before. And we are talking about leader versus cords and I'll give you the site. It's uh, 182 Cal App 4th, 1588. So 182 Cal App 4th, 1588. And uh, this comes out of the 4th Appellate District and it was decided in March of 2010. So the whole issue in Leader v. Cords came down to something that really is quite simple, which is you have two beneficiaries who are entitled to money from a trust. The trust is over. The trust says you're supposed to have outright distributions. It's a done deal. But the trustee won't make a distribution because the trustee wants some jewelry that one of the beneficiaries took out of the estate, out of the house, whatever. And how many cases do we have where it comes down to something like a piece of jewelry or a coin collection or a stamp collection? I mean, it seems to be in almost every case. It's almost it? every case. And then the other thing I would just say is that trustees who are in control and are maybe a little bit control freaky, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be jewelry, a car, bad feelings, don't like their siblings. There's always something they're doing. And they're saying, I'm not going to make a distribution for X. Until this, you do this. Until you do yeah. this. In this case, it was jewelry. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what it is. But this, this trustee is essentially holding the trust distribution ransom uh, until they get what they want on the jewelry. The interesting thing is that the jewelry was not part of the trust. And so the jewelry actually came out of an estate. It's not a trust asset. But yet the trustee is, is saying, I'm not going to make a distribution until you give me the jewelry. And the beneficiaries went to court, asked for an accounting, which they received. And the uh, trustee says, well, I gave you an accounting. I don't owe you anything else. And the court says, well, no, you do owe them something else, which is a distribution. Because an accounting in and of itself isn't the point of a trust. The point of a trust is to give the assets to the beneficiaries. That's why it was set up in the first place. So the uh, trial court ruled that the trustee must make a distribution, that he's not allowed to hold that distribution ransom uh, pending this outcome on the jewelry. And in particular, the trial court said that the trustee was in violation of probate code section 16004 sub C. And I brought my trustee probate code section that I 
have on the corner of my desk at all times. And 16004 has to do with duty to avoid conflict of interest because the trustee and under sub C, it talks about a transaction between the trustee and a beneficiary which occurs during the trust administration uh, where the trustee gains an advantage from the beneficiary. I think advantage is the word I was actually having in my mind, and that is any time a trustee is trying to take advantage or put themselves in an advantage position over the beneficiaries, that's a breach of the duty of con. That's the that uh, that's the breach of a duty not to have a conflict of interest. Right. And so we see trustees doing this time and time again, who are their trustees and also beneficiaries at the same time. But in order to make their piece of the pie bigger, mm -hmm. they violate this duty time and time again. And here in Leader v. Cords, you have a trustee that's saying, I'm not gonna give you the jewelry on an unrelated trust matter yeah. until you agree with me on the trust matter that I'm gonna be advantaged. And it's, I mean, yeah, it'd be kind of like me saying, give me your watch or else I'm not gonna give you the money that you're otherwise entitled to under the trust, which you have a right to, but I'm just gonna withhold it right. just because. Right. Uh, the court also referenced probate code section 16004.5. And this is where a trustee is not allowed to ask for uh, a release of liability in exchange for a distribution. Right. You see that all the time. Yep. A lot of times. If you'll sign this, I'll send you your distribution. Yeah, relieve me from all legal liability and I'll give you your money. No, it doesn't. It's not supposed to work that way. Um, so the appellate court affirmed and it says, look, the duty, the, the appellate court made the point that the duty to account for the funds of the trust is an important duty, but it's not it's not the end of the trustee's duty. Once you account, the trustee has a further duty, and that is to deliver the property to the beneficiary. Now that seems to me, and maybe it seems to people watching this, to be obvious. Of course a trustee has to give property to a beneficiary if that's what the trust says, why wouldn't they? But this is a very um, kind of a seminal case in this area that we use a lot, where we say it's not good enough that you accounted, and it's not good enough that you gave us information it's not good enough that you're telling us that someday you plan to make a distribution. You have to distribute. So let me give, let me give you a hypothetical based on what you just uh, talked about. And that is, let's say that we have three beneficiaries and there's a $3 million trust. One of those beneficiaries is also the trustee. So obviously two of the beneficiaries are upset because they're not getting their assets. Mm -hmm. And you have a trustee who, who provides all the information you'd ever want on the assets in the trust, the liabilities of the trust. But they say it's going to be a year and a half or so to finish up the trust administration. But we've got this $3 million in cool, hard cash sitting here in this bank account. Yeah. And they're saying, look, I'm going to give it to you 18 months from now. All the taxes will have been paid. All of the attorney's fees will have been paid. All the trust administration fees will have been paid. And once I know that's happening, then I know it's safe for me as trustee to give you all your $1 million apiece because we're all going to split this three ways. So what do we use leader v cords for in that scenario? In order to get a preliminary distribution. And so I think a lot of trustees make the mistake if they're not professionals and they haven't been doing this before, they make the mistake of thinking it's all or nothing. So you either have to give people all of their distribution or nothing. And so they err on the side of nothing because it makes, and giving nothing makes the trustee feel comfy cozy because they know they have plenty of money there and they don't have to worry about making any decisions today. So they can wait 18 months or two years or three years. But the problem is, is that that's not what the law requires. And so we use leader v. Cords to say, you're allowed to keep a reasonable reserve. You're not allowed to withhold $3 million total 
from everybody for 18 months, that would be unreasonable. So at this point in time, if that trustee understood there was trust administration expenditures and there's no real litigation on the horizon, if they were to say, okay, we're gonna keep $500,000 in a retention amount, account, that's actually a quite high number. But if they were to say, we'll keep 500,000, we'll distribute the rest in equal shares, you probably wouldn't get much objection from the beneficiaries. No, I think as a beneficiary, you'd have to really, uh, you probably would go along with that. But I mean, 500,000 is a very big reserve, even on a $3 million estate. But yeah, at least it's not 3 million. And so if I had a choice between, tell you what, I'll distribute everything but the 500,000, yes, I'll take that, most definitely, because you might as well put it in your pocket. Right. But the other 500,000, let's talk about what would be more reasonable. Right. But yeah, trustees do not have the right to just withhold it indefinitely. They have to, they have to get on with it. Right. So that's where we use leader v. courts. We'll bring a petition in probate court. We'll demand a distribution. And that's the other thing about demanding a distribution, by the way. So in your example, where you're talking about all these things, um, $3 million, don't want to distribute. What about removing the trustee? Uh, would you prefer to remove the trustee or would you prefer to get an order distributing assets? Well, uh, the practical answer to that is I want to get the assets as soon as possible. Removing a trustee is going to take some time. It's going to take an evidentiary hearing. We're going to have to finish up written discovery, depositions, whatever, before the court is likely to make, going to make that call. But we see courts routinely make calls, especially on the $3 million hypothetical, hey, if you're going to reserve $500,000 and the other 2.5, it's got to be distributed out to these beneficiaries. There's no reason why they have to wait for that. Yeah, you can get a distribution without a trial. That's right. Yeah, it's fantastic. And so, and plus, at the end of the day, it's better to get money into your hands and get it out of the trustee's hands. And then removal becomes less important because if the trustee is trustee of a trust that only has 50 grand in it, whatever I mean you can pay attention to them and you know if they misspend it you can certainly hold them liable but it's not as big of a deal as if they're holding three million and they're misspending it yeah one thing I think the two beneficiaries here want to be careful of let's say that the trustee here there's uh, some facts that lead you to believe that maybe they took five hundred thousand or a million dollars before mom and dad passed away and they used those assets in an improper fashion you may want a larger retention amount just so that you can go after their assets essentially their share of the assets, you'll take it out of that retention account because once you distribute it out to them, it's going to be harder to get. So there is a select group of cases where you might be the one telling the trustee, hey, why don't you retain a million and distribute two million? And the trustee's going to say, oh, great, that's a great idea because you know you need additional assets in that retention account to make up for the losses that the trustee caused. Yeah, so it just, uh, yeah, that's right. If they're also a beneficiary. So it just depends on the circumstance. Correct. But but you're definitely entitled to something out of the trust. And you know, the interesting thing about Leader v. Courts too is that if you read the case, there wasn't that much at issue. It was like $75,000. And yet these people had to go to court. They had to fight it out at the trial court. Then they got appealed. They had to do an appeal. And so they did us all a favor because now we have this great case, Leader v. Courts, that we can use to our benefit. But man, it was a lot of work and probably a lot of money and expense for them to get their trust distribution. And that's the other thing they have to understand about this is that when you have a trustee who refuses to make a distribution, there's a lot you can do to fight against that, but you do have to take the action and, and incur the expense to fight against that. Right. It's not gonna solve itself, so. Okay, so that's our Leader v. Cords. Why don't we go on to uh, Asked and Answered and we'll see what kind of questions we have and we'll turn to the ever lovely paralegal Kayla. Hi. Kayla. Hello. 
So our first question today is, I am naming my father's will. How do I get my inheritance? So let's assume that, because there's a couple of different facets to that question, but let's say that nothing's really started yet. You're, you're named in a will and you're supposed to receive the inheritance and nobody's done anything yet. So what's step one to try and get whatever it is you're supposed to get in well, a will? Well, you'd file a petition for probate if you have a copy of the will. You believe it's a genuine will, you gotta find out where the original is. You gotta find out who has it and ask them why they haven't filed a petition for probate. And if they refuse to do so, then you can move forward yourself with a petition for probate. And that's important. So that means that if you're named in a will, you have the right to file a petition for probate, even if you're not the named executor. You know, anybody who's an interested party in this estate has the right to file. And you can ask that the named executor be appointed, or you can ask that some professional be appointed and leave it up to the named executor to come in and, and argue against that. You can get the process started. Uh, you have to understand that under a will, you're only going to get your assets once the assets go through the court process that we call probate. You're not going to be able to receive them outside of probate unless it's less than $150,000, I think is the limit now, um, or if it's owned in joint tenancy or something like that. So you do have to do that. Now, what about, let's say that you are named in your father's will and you're supposed to receive an inheritance and there's a probate open and it's going along, but it just seems like it's just stopped. Like they, they did everything they were supposed to do and then they stopped working on it and it's been a year and nothing's happened on it. How do you get your inheritance then? Well, you can, you can first of all contact the administrator, the executor, and find out what's going on. At least you take a, a stab at that and have some type of written communication showing that you tried to work that out informally. And then you're going to go to the probate court and file a petition for instructions or some other type of petition where you're asking the court to order the, that, that executor follow through with the probate process, or if they won't, in the alternative, appoint another executor. Yeah, because you need to get rid of that person if they're not going to do the job. Because you do have to have a petition to close the estate, and that's when you get a distribution. Uh, the executor is not allowed to make distributions without a court order, but you can go in and ask for a preliminary distribution. So you can go on in a petition, and uh, anybody can. Any of the beneficiaries of the estate can go in and ask the court to at least order a preliminary distribution. So if you go back to your example of $3 million in the estate, uh, and you want to get at least half of it out, you can ask the court to order a distribution of half of it, and the court can do that if it, if it decides to do that. So One thing to keep in mind here, the question was specifically asking about a will. And so there's essentially there's several uh, vehicles that we have that trans, uh, transfer properties at the time of death. Uh, we call them two categories of, of transfers. One is a probate transfer and the other are non-probate transfers. Can you walk us through the distinctions there and what vehicles are we mostly running into with the non-probate transfers and what vehicle do we run into all the time with the probate transfers? So on the, the only thing that really goes through probate is anything that passes under a will or passes in the intestate statutes and that is assets that are owned in a decedent's individual name. So if I have something in my name, you know, a bank account, and I pass away and it's just in my name, then it's gonna go to my estate. And if I have a will, it'll go under the will. And if I don't have a will, it'll go intestate. If I have any other system of doing these things, then that's gonna change. And that's called a non-probate transfer. Right. So the, just, just so I'm clear, then the probate transfer you're going to go to the probate court and there's going to be an administration that's going to be overseen and supervised by the court with lawyers present. Right. 
And in that probate, what we're really talking about is either somebody that had a will, and this is significant, it's a will, it's not a trust, it's a right. will, or somebody that died without a will and they don't have any other non-probate transfers. That's right. And then everything else is probably a non-probate transfer, which means joint tenancy. So if you own a, an account under joint tenancy, beneficiary designations like a life insurance or a 401k or an IRA. Or a bank account. That, or a bank account that has a beneficiary designation. Okay. And of course, the biggest of them all, the trust. So if you have a trust, that's a non-probate way of transferring assets. And, and when you talk about a trust, are you talking about living trusts? Yeah, revocable living trusts. Okay. Uh, although you can create irrevocable trusts during lifetime too, but what everybody always hears about is, I need a revocable trust or I need a living trust. All the same thing. All the same thing. So. What that does is it allows you to transfer assets uh, into this entity of a trust while you're alive, and then upon your death, it passes to your beneficiaries without, in theory, having to go to court. Unless, of course, there's a problem, and then you're gonna file in court. And when you file in court, you file in the probate court, which it's not a probate per se, but that's just where you file your trust matter if there's a problem with your trust. Okay, and one last thing to tie this all together then, Keith, and that is, the question in this case was, there's a will and I can't get my inheritance. And so the, the result was either find out who is the proposed executor or the named executor and tell them, hey, you need to file a petition for probate. And if you don't, I'll file, file a petition for probate. That's what we would do with a will. Yeah. What if the same question, but it's a trust? What, what do we do then? Well, and that, that brings us to our second question. So Kayla, maybe you can, you can ask us our second question and we'll see how that works Boy, out. Well, I got in Kayla's way on that yeah, one. Sorry, did. Kayla. That's okay. So the second question Stealing is, I'm a thunder. beneficiary to my uncle's trust. How do I get my inheritance? So I think, how is it normally supposed to work with a trust? So you, you just posed a question as well, which tees off nicely with this one, which is, okay, it's not a will, it's a trust. How am I going to get it? And the problem with a trust is it happens outside of court. So there's nothing within the court process in theory that needs to happen for you to transfer assets under a trust. So in other words, under unless a there's a problem. So under a trust, it's not court supervised. Right. Under a probate of a will, that is court supervised. That's right. Or if I don't have a will and I don't have any trust or any other type of non-probate transfer, that's also gonna be court supervised. Yes. But if we're talking specifically about a trust and there's assets subject to that trust, no court supervision, and at least not not initially if there's no litigation involved. That's right. And in California, anything that goes under probate, under a will or intestate, that's always court supervised. We don't have any out-of-court probates like other states have. Our, our system is very antiquated in that sense. But when it comes to a trust, if you know that you're named as a beneficiary in a trust and you don't know how to get your inheritance because you haven't been contacted by anybody, I think I would do this same thing that Stuart suggested, that you suggested on the will, which is contact the trustee, See if there's a trust attorney and find out, well, what's going on? Are you, are you acting as trustee? Are you gathering together the assets? What is your plan for distribution? All that sort of thing. And you should follow that up in writing. So send a letter, an email, carrier pigeon, something to request that information. And then if that doesn't work, then the next step would be having to go to court and get uh, a petition for instructions asking that a proper trustee be appointed, maybe a professional, who can take the proper actions, I would think. Right. So, um, but a lot of times people have a problem even finding the trust document. We've talked about that last week, that it can be real tricky finding the trust document. Sure. But, but once you have it, then you can enforce it. So either the trustee who's named in there is gonna act or go find a new trustee. Right. What's the All next right. question, Kayla? 
Okay, we have a good question from Facebook. We closed out a trust and paid everyone. We then found out the house has a lien of $100,000. The lien is by a private party who hasn't requested a payment in 20 years. How do, how do we find out if the lien is legitimate? And how can we pay it? Boy, that's, a, that's an interesting issue, especially if the house was distributed. So if the house wasn't sold, it was just dis distributed out to the beneficiaries, the lien's still gonna be there. If it was, was sold, then you would think the lien would have been taken care of as part of the Escrow, sale process. Right. Yeah. So I guess my first question would be, well, what's the lien based on? Is it based on something that's still enforceable or not? Because one of the things that people don't understand is that if you have a debt against the decedent, you have to file a claim for that debt within one year of the date of death or it's not enforceable. But that doesn't apply to things like mortgages that are secured by a deed of trust and it may not apply to a lien depending on what the underlying lien is securing. So if it's like a deed of trust, uh, those could still be subject to foreclosure the property could still be subject to foreclosure. If it's based on some contract that's no longer enforceable, then you could actually just go to court. You can either ask the person to remove the lien or you can file a motion and ask the court to order that the lien be removed. And the court will order that if there's not a good basis to keep it. In terms of paying it, what do you think? Well, I think we need more information. So what I would, my answer to that question would be, number one, find out the basis of the lien. Yeah. Find out what are your arguments against paying it. Yeah. What are the arguments that the other side's going to argue for paying it? Especially if it's a contract or something, there's a good chance that you don't have to pay it. Yeah, you may not have to pay it. And so it, you got, you got to determine, first of all, whether it's payable or not. And even if it is payable, um, the question is, is can this be resolved uh, for something less than the value of, of what they're asking for? And Which, was there an interest component that's running here? Probably not. But you need to find out the, the value, find out who it's owed to, if they're even around. And if they're not, you may be able, like you said, to go in and get a court to simply dismiss the lien. Yeah, and those, uh, those, those debts of a decedent often can be negotiated down. That's pretty common. Because for somebody to actually enforce a debt against the decedent, like I said, you had to file a claim and probate. So if it's not enforceable, you just don't pay it. If it is enforceable, then you definitely could potentially negotiate it down, and you should try to do that. And then if you do have to pay it, then I'd say whoever received that asset whether it's one person or multiple people, they would all have to chip in to pay that. Well, and, and, and this is where I wanted to add on this, and that is it depends on who is, uh, who is this person, who is this question coming from? Is it coming from a beneficiary right. or is it coming from the trustee? And the problem, if it's coming from the trustee, there's one person that's responsible for paying this and handling this, and that's the trustee. What we found is once the trustee makes distributions out to a beneficiary, beneficiaries are very likely not to send money back in. And <laughs> right. so this is one of those things where, and it's unfortunate that this was found after the fact, it still can probably be remedied. But if you're a trustee and you're watching this and you haven't made a distribution yet, you do wanna make sure that everything is taken care of before you make that distribution because ultimately you're gonna be held accountable for that. Potentially, yeah. So the trustee should have figured this out before they made the distribution, right. number one. If they didn't, then the question is, are they liable for something? Which they may or may not be, it right. depends on the circumstances. Right. But I still think at the end of the day, the beneficiaries, since they're the ones holding this real property, they're going to be the ones who ultimately are going to have to pay off this lien if it's enforceable. Right. Because they're the ones who have the property and who else is, nobody else is going to care. Right. You know, so if you want to keep the property or if you want to sell the property, something's going to have to happen. What's up next, Kayla? 
the next question is, how long will it take to get my inheritance? Well, we get this question a lot, and let's just use it as an example of a, a will and a trust, since we've kind of gone down both of those roads today. So if we're talking about a will, Keith, uh, somebody's just died, let's say it's been a month since they passed away, we have a will, a petition for probate has just been filed, how long are we looking at before a distribution is going to be made to the will beneficiaries? Well, back when we used to do probates, I used to always tell people that <clears throat> if it's a very simple probate and nobody's going to object to anything, you, best case scenario is 12 months, 12 to 18 months. That's the that's like 12 months is lightning speed for probate. I've actually closed one in maybe nine months, and that was lightning fast for probate. Uh, if there's going to be any issues, you have to sell assets. There's tax issues. Uh, there's a fight over something. You're going to be 18 to 24 months easy, and maybe longer. So the probate process does make things longer because you have to wait for court hearings, and that slows things down. But the parties also can slow things down. So it's going to be it's going to take some time. Right. And then if we're talking about a trust administration under the same set of facts, somebody has passed away a month ago, the trustee has now gotten their feet under them, they've, they've seen a copy of the trust, they know what the assets roughly are, they roughly yeah. know what the liabilities are and so forth. How long are we looking at for beneficiaries before they're going to get a trust distribution? Well, that can vary based on the same issues, but if it's straightforward, there's like let's say you have an estate that's just pretty much cash, no real property has to be sold, there's not a whole lot of creditors, there's not infighting with the beneficiaries, you should be able to distribute that trust within probably three to four months. Um, you have a 120-day period you have to wait for the con no contest provision or for the time period to contest the trust, which you want to be careful of even if you don't think there's going to be a contest. So you're going to want to wait at least that period of time. But let's say six months should, should close the trust if there's no problems and no sale of real property. The only thing I would caution on that, and I agree with you, it can, it can be done that fast. It normally isn't. Right. Um, there is a one-year statute against a decedent, a decedent's estate, and the decedent's estate, if it's, if it's insolvent and doesn't have any assets to pay any creditors, then they, under the probate code, can seek assets in the living trust. Uh, now, that takes some hoops to jump through to do that correctly, yeah. but I think that's something that I think you're right. Theoretically, trust administration should be quicker by the fact that they're not court supervised and you don't have a probate attorney asking, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? And continuing hearings and so forth. Uh, but with the trust though, the trustee has to realize there is some liability and that's where we talked about earlier about preliminary distributions. Right. Those come in and so nicely because if you wanna wait that year out before you distribute all the assets out, just in case there is an unknown creditor floating around out there, you can make a preliminary distribution, make the beneficiaries happy retain a certain amount in the trust account and then you're going to be in a good position. Yeah, absolutely. And preliminary distributions work great because it, it lets you get things started. I mean, I'd say on average a trust should be distributed probably anywhere between 10 to 18 months unless there's litigation or unless there's an estate tax return or something like that. But I don't think it'd be out, out of... Uh, out of the ordinary to have about 10 to 18 months on a trust administration. That's right. And if there is a, a, an estate tax return that needs to be done, those are very unusual now because it has to be a very large estate, yeah. uh, which there's a few of those floating around out there. Uh, it can be 18 months or more just because you're waiting for the IRS to give you a closing letter and so forth right. before you make that distribution. But still, there can be some preliminary distributions. Yes. I think if I were a trustee or if I was advising trustees since we attack them quite often, I would say, look, try to figure out how to make the beneficiaries happy if you can. 
And that means making pull them together at the table, ha, give them a voice, let them know, hey guys, here's what I'm facing as a trustee. There may be unknown creditors out there. There's tax returns. There's a 706 estate tax return that needs to be done. Uh, there's expenses that need to be paid, mortgages, there's some debts, some credit cards, all these things need to be paid off and I feel stressed out about that. So if I can give you guys, say, 30 or 40% of the trust estate in the meantime, so that let me finish up the trust administration for 18 months and then I'll give you the rest. Well, I think it's a great idea because not only that, but it, once you give money to the beneficiaries, the trustee no longer has to manage it. You don't have to invest it. You don't have to account for it. You look completely reasonable. Right. If in the future you ask for a release of liability, you can't, nobody can say that you conditioned that release of liability on making a distribution because you already made a distribution. Right. That was one of the things I always did when we represented trustees is let's get a preliminary distribution out before we even ask for a release of liability so we're not triggering this probate code right. that says you can't do that. Right. Now I've given the beneficiaries money and there's a smaller amount left in reserve. Now we say, hey, would you like to sign this release of liability or do you want us to do a court accounting, which is expensive? Then the beneficiaries can make a decision and we don't look like we're running afoul of the probate code. That's right. It's fantastic. So, yeah. All right. The next question is, do I need legal representation if I'm a beneficiary and I have hard evidence of trustee fraud? And the second part is, the original grantor is incapacitated with Alzheimer's. I mean, what, what's, what's your answer? Well, it sounds like there may be uh, an issue of conservatorship that may be out with uh, open there. If the settlor is still living yeah. and has dementia, then the question is, is there is a conservatorship filing needed? And that's problematic and it's, it has its own issues that run with that. But let's talk about, do I need a lawyer to prove up fraud? Um, first of all, I understand that lawyers don't have the best reputations and probably deservedly so. Uh, but lawyers are needed, in, particularly in these kind of cases. I mean, think about what we just talked about today. We talked about a different procedure for wills, a different procedures for testate versus intestate, a different procedure for living trust versus uh, other non-probate transfers. This is a very complex area, and now on top of that, you're going to throw fraud in. Well, what are some of the things we run into as lawyers and give us a hard time to figure out versus a layperson trying to do some type of fraud claim. And the thing that comes to my mind is just trial. I mean, you know, we just finished a trial about two weeks ago. It's a lot of work. It's complicated the way that you have to present evidence, get it admissible versus not admissible. I mean, the fact that you have really great evidence of fraud doesn't do you uh, any good whatsoever if you can't get it admitted as evidence at time of trial. So I think sometimes people think that in probate court, you'll show up and you'll just hand your evidence to the judge and the judge will somehow make a decision. That's not how it works. There's a trial in probate court just like there is in any other court. And it's no different from personal injury or anything else. So at some point you're going to have to have a trial. That means you're going to have to have evidence admitted. You're gonna to have to question witnesses. You're gonna probably have expert witnesses. Uh, all of these complex issues have to come together in the form of a trial. So you certainly could do it on your own, I suppose. People do represent themselves at trials. I wouldn't recommend it. 
well, even before you get to trial, and I agree with everything you just said, you're going to have to plead a fraud cause of action, which yeah, even young lawyers have a tough time yeah, figuring out. You have to plead it with specificity. That's yeah. right. And so, so just learning how to plead it. And, and one other thing, Keith, uh, I'll say, and you can, you, you, you've been a part of these discussions we've had with clients. There's many times we meet with people, and these, are, these people have the best of intentions. They, they're not dishonest in any way, but they say, Mr. Davis and Mr. Albertson, I've got a slam dunk case for you. I've got a fraud case for you that I can prove three ways to Sunday. And you and I look at them and say, listen, I appreciate that you really feel convinced that this is what happened, but it's very rare we come across a case that is a quote unquote slam dunk. There are no slam dunk cases, there's just not. And no matter how great you think your evidence is, somebody else can see that evidence in a different light that is gonna cause you problems. And so part of a lawyer's job is to structure the facts and the story and the narrative in a light that's most favorable to you and to your side of the case. And it's very important that somebody is able to do that and work with that so that you can put your best foot forward. So it's not, it's not an easy thing, unfortunately. I mean, I wish it was easier for beneficiaries because a lot of beneficiaries get into problems and it's not easy to hire lawyers to take care of these issues. Um, but they're complex. This is a complex area of the law. It's far more complex than I think people realize until they're in the middle of it. And then they're in the middle of it, I think then they realize that, man, this is really, it gets a lot complicated. Well, and I'll even, I'll even say that, you know, there's a lot of personal injury attorneys out there that are very fine personal injury attorneys. They're very smart. There's even some defense attorneys out there, and some of them will take these trust and estate con trust contests or a will contest on, and they'll work it up a little bit, and then they'll realize no, 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 this is not something I'm taking the time to really understand and know, and they'll give us a call. Right, Well, there's, a, there's reason, a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot yeah. of ins and outs, and these are people that are trained in the law. Right. So mm -hmm. I would say, you know, if there's not a lot at stake and you can't find a lawyer to take your case and you want to ex ex expand your horizons as an individual and learn something, sure, go ahead and give this a shot, but it's, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be tough. If there's a large amount of money at stake, I think you need to hire a lawyer, and this goes back to the whole point that many people that come and foresee us, they tell us, hey, we love you, but why do we have to hire you to get what, what we're already entitled to? And, and your response to that has always been? <laughs> I'm not sure what my response has always been, but I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's, it's, it's the process. It's understanding the complexities. It's the experience. You're hiring experience at the end of the day. Well, and I, what I was getting at is your response normally is along the lines of, look, look, guys, I, I know you don't like to have to hire a lawyer to resolve this matter for you, but I don't see any other way you can do this. Because you have a right to something, but it, do you have it? Right. And no, somebody's telling you, no, you're not going to get it. And so the only way to, to get that asset or get to what you're entitled to under a trust or a will is to seek court intervention and unfortunately that means hiring a lawyer yeah because then you have to go through the process so yeah you can have a right to something but until it's in your hand having right. the right to it doesn't really mean a whole lot right is that what i usually say that's what you usually say that's really good yes it is I'll have yeah. To remember yeah, that. i said it much better than you normally say but <laughs> so what's our next question kayla the next question is the trustee or executor will not respond what can i do and why don't you pose the next question down too because i'm keeping track here yeah this is a related question the trustee won't tell me how much is in the trust and is keeping everything secret how do i know what i'm entitled to as a beneficiary 
Well, that always is an interesting point. So just because you're a beneficiary and just because you have a right to something doesn't necessarily mean that you know what that right is. And so almost, gosh, I don't know, maybe 95% of the time when a beneficiary calls us and wants to hire us on their case, they don't know as much as we wish they knew. They're in the dark with some aspect of their case. Either they don't know all the trust terms, they don't know all the trust property, they don't know what the trustee's been doing with the trust property or how it's been invested. They probably don't even know the full amounts in the bank accounts and financial accounts. If the trust is getting rent, they don't know really how much rent or where it's going or how it's being used. And they usually don't have any appraisals on the real property. And we that's all information that a beneficiary is entitled to, and we'd love to see it and have it. But when you ask the beneficiaries when they first call us, you know, do you have this information? The answer is no. And I usually tell people, well, you're not alone. You're in the dark, but most beneficiaries are. And so what do you do when you're in the dark? Well, we always feel that the key here is to get the copy of the trust. Whatever version of the trust is the most operative after somebody passes away. So if there's amendments, if there's restatements, or just an original trust, we need that because that's the roadmap that's going to describe to us what that person's particular rights are under that trust document. And then once we have that trust document, well, there's some rules under the probate code where we can ask the other side, hopefully they'll have a lawyer, please give us a, a just a rough approximation of the assets and liabilities. And that's something that can come quite quickly, generally. And then you start getting into some of the things we talked about under leader versus cords. And that is, hey, there's $3 million here. You, yes, you've just started this trust administration, but you don't need $3 million to do this. Let's talk about a preliminary distribution. And I think from my point of view too, and I, I think you would agree with this, is that you know you need to send out in writing a request for all that information for sure, but you need to get a petition in probate court as quickly as possible. Because once you're in probate court, now the trustee can't play games. They can't hide information from you. They can't say, oh, I'll send you those bank statements, but never do it. Once you're in court, now not only will the judge order them to provide you with that information, but you also get subpoena power. So now you can subpoena the banks and brokerage firms directly and get the information and look at the original source documents. So when it comes to, you know, my tr the trustee's not responding to me or he's keeping things secret or whatever the circumstance, the ultimate solution for all of those problems is file a petition in court and demand that they hand it over. And then once you're in court, file subpoenas and then maybe depositions. Right. From there. The best case scenario for somebody in this position, I think, is that they have lawyers that know what they're doing on their side. And also the trustee gets a lawyer that knows what they're doing on their oh, side. Oh, yeah, that's very Because then helpful. the two lawyers can get together and hopefully not be all that emotional. And they speak the same language, the same practice area. And usually this stuff can be ticked off pretty easily from there. There's nothing worse than a trustee that goes out and hires a lawyer who doesn't understand trust administration. Because then you get this adversarial, you know, them versus us relationship. Which is not the way trustees are supposed to act. They're that's supposed right. to act in a way that's beneficial to the beneficiaries. Well, and think about it. When you don't know an answer to a question, Keith, which is very rare, by the way, I have to point out, but when you <laughs> okay. don't know an answer to the question, what's your default? You no. get defensive, yeah, no, no yeah. I'm not, I, I, I'm just Especially not, with money. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do anything. And then right. we're sitting there trying to explain to a personal injury attorney, a defense attorney that doesn't have any real experience in this area, we're trying to explain, hey, you know, under leader versus cords, you need to make a distribution. And they're thinking, what are you doing trying to yeah. trick me? Yeah, you're trying to get one over on me. We're not trying to trick you. We're, we're trying to tell you this is what you need to do. Right. So Yeah, it's much better when uh, the trustee has a lawyer who knows trust administration because then 
when we call up and say, hey, we need this information, if they're smart and they want their trustee to look reasonable, which you they should want to keep them out of trouble, the first thing they're going to say is, here you go. Right. Here's everything you asked for. Well, and what's funny is we live in California. I think there's, what, 40 million people here, 8 million households or something like that. It's It's so many people, and yet we know all the good trust and estate litigators in the state. And we run against them time and time and again. Yeah, there's not that many, right? And we know who they are. We're not best friends with any of them. We get along with everybody. But the point is, is that we know who they are. It's a small group of people. Right. And if you find one of those people, good things generally will happen in your case. Yeah, and if you're a trustee, you want that attorney representing you because they're going to keep you out of hot water. Yes. Whereas another attorney who's going to make things adversarial, they're going to get you into trouble. Right. And then, you know, you're, you're going to be in, in, in a world of hurt. What's our next question, Kayla? The next question is, the trustee is trying to force me to sign something before I get my inheritance. Should I sign it, and what can I do? Well, it's never a good idea to sign anything that either releases the trustee of liability or waives an accounting until you first understand what's happening. So, I mean, how do you go about that? There's a safe way and a not safe way. A little bit of a risky way. It's not significantly risky, but the safe way to do it is don't sign anything. Just go get right. your distribution. The little bit of a risky way to do it is to simply sign and get what you're entitled to. And then if you see something that's funny down the road later, I think you can argue that, hey, number one, I didn't have to sign this to get my distribution. Secondly, I wasn't given all the facts on right. this release, and you didn't present to me all the data that I needed to know to give you a genuine release. Right. But now you're in a position where you know a court could see it differently. I, although I think most courts are gonna give you the benefit of the doubt on that as a beneficiary. And I've had a number, not that many cases, but I've had a handful of cases where we were able to overturn a release because of that very scenario. That's right. But you'd rather not fight that fight. You're better off to talk to a lawyer if you're asked to sign a release, at least have a consultation with somebody and review all the financials of the trust. And if you're comfortable with what you're seeing, then right. go ahead and sign. You know, I was just it just hit me that, it looks like we got our video back, but it just hit me that I remember many years ago, uh, I had a case where uh, one nice thing to throw to the other a lawyer anytime they want to do something is, do you have any authority for that? Right. And many times you'll have lawyers that'll shoot back right at you. Well, what, do you have any authority that I can't? And this is, this is exactly what we did on that case. We said, hey, you sent us a release. There's, can you provide me any authority that we have to sign this prior to getting the distribution? Right. And I got a snarky letter back. Well, can you present me any evidence or any authority that you don't have to? And I'm like, gladly. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. So that can work <laughs> out well, right? Yeah, that can work out well for you down the road. So. And you probably should ask the trustee to give you a preliminary distribution before you sign too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that it should be an easy thing for them to do, and it's reasonable. Right. So. Right. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Sorry we had a little technical difficulties there. You weren't able to see our beautiful faces for a few minutes. Tragic. I know. It really is sad. Um, so we are live on the uh, Stand Fight Win live stream weekly. You can find this uh, as a recorded broadcast when we're done here on both Facebook and YouTube. And you can also find an audio-only version of this as our podcast on both iTunes and Podbean. I want to thank you very much for joining us. I want, to, I want to thank our outstanding assistants that help us week in and week out. We have the lovely Manisha here. Thank you. And the lovely Kayla. 
and they make this work for us. We just kind of show up after lunch, after we've had a nice lunch, and sit down. There's a microphone, and Somebody we talk. Somebody does my makeup yeah. and my hair. We look forward. We look forward to these actually weekly, and we enjoy your questions. Feel free to send your questions into us over the week. We'll include them next week and or a week after that, and uh, we uh, look forward to uh, hopefully answering your questions. Absolutely. All See right. you next time. Thank you.